Welcome to the Fiber for Breakfast podcast, a series that discusses fiber as the critical infrastructure for today's growing broadband needs. Listen in as Gary Bolton, CEO and President of the Fiber Broadband Association, speaks with industry thought leaders and experts about connectivity issues and the impact on the remote workplace. I hope you enjoy today's discussion, which will start momentarily. And remember to subscribe and like this podcast on your favorite platform. This week's Fiber for Breakfast brought to you by our platinum sponsor, Broadband.Money. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Fiber Broadband Association's Fiber for Breakfast. We're now in our second episode of 2022. But before we kick off, I'd like to thank our sponsors for Fiber for Breakfast, including our platinum sponsor, Broadband Money. Our gold sponsors are Joner Tools, Millennium, mybundle.tv, and our silver sponsor is STL. So FBA is drafting comments that are due on February 4th. The Fiber Broadband Association will also be holding a webinar on Wednesday, January 19th. It's the 43.5 billion passed for broadband infrastructure. Now for your next steps. During this webinar, you know, our policy experts are going to break down the statute and what are the key gotchas. We're going to review the NTI process and timelines. We're going to outline the next steps and key steps that each state broadband office needs to do and how Congress is going to engage and, and give you some of the inside baseball and the politics of the exercise. We'll leave plenty of time for Q&A, so get your questions ready. The affordability connectivity program rules were also um, issued last Friday. This is a $14.2 billion FCC program that's part of the IIJA. We anticipate that this money is going to last about four to five years, and it replaces the emergency broadband benefit program. So if you're an operator, you definitely want to be on the inside of this. The final rules will be out this Friday. Also, the final Treasury Department rules have been issued for the ARPA block grants. This is a $350 billion state grant program that takes effect on April 1st. Uh, Treasury and the new rules, the final rules, is prioritizing fiber projects, which we'd love to hear. And some states are already ahead of the program and starting to spend before the program takes effect, such as Virginia. So you guys get out there and start spending your money. We expect about $15 billion of this program to be spent on broadband in 2022 and perhaps some into 2023. Treasury also has the $10 billion capital projects grant. In this program, the states will send projects to Treasury um, to get approved. So states will need to apply by September this year. And this money can be used for broadband and other infrastructure investments. We anticipate about $2.5 billion of these funds will be spent on broadband. So looking at Capitol Hill, we anticipate that Alan Davidson's nomination to head NTIA will get confirmed. So that looks all good. Uh, However, the fifth seat of the FCC is another matter. It appears that this nomination will have to go be resubmitted. So we can expect that the four commissioner FCC will remain at a 2-2 tie for the next several months. So as you can see, no shortage of activity in DC on broadband this year. Uh, as you know, billions of dollars of broadband moves to the state for distribution, you know, we're seeing a lot of misinformation in an attempt to confuse state and local officials on what's the best investment choice for their critical broadband infrastructure. 
So that brings us to this morning's Fiber for Breakfast session on why fiber is the only future-ready broadband. I'm Gary Bolton, the president and CEO of the Fiber Broadband Association. Last week, we met with our good friend, um, Daniel Holbrook of the Oregon Broadband Office as he discussed charting Oregon's trail to digital equity. Daniel described how he has doubled the size of the staff at the Oregon State Broadband Office from one person to two people. And he's working on getting funding to add, you know, through the state budget to get three more people. So when you think about the enormity of the job of head of Oregon and all the state broadband offices with billions of dollars of infrastructure money to be in, to administrate, it really highlights how important that federal funding playbook that the Fiber Broadband Association is developing is going to be to these offices and everything we can do to help support these state offices. In our session this morning, um, we're going to have the Fiber Broadband Association's chair of the technology committee, John George. And our topic today is why fiber is the only future ready broadband. This, summer, this session is a brief summary of a number of white papers the technology committee has developed over the past year in an effort to help clarify where communities should invest their precious broadband infrastructure funding to ensure they build a future-proof network. John George is the Senior Director of Solutions and Professional Services at OFS for the company's optical fiber, cable, connectivity, fusion splicer, and solutions business. He also serves as the Fiber Broadband Association's Technology Committee Chair. John has published and presented on numerous papers and articles on fiber optics and fiber at home and has been active in the industry standards. John participated in forming the IEEE and IEC and TIA optical fiber related standards and has been an active member of the Fiber Broadband Association from its founding year of 2001. So that's over 20 years of service to the Fiber Broadband Association. So thank you, John, for your service. And with that, I'd like to welcome John. And for our audience, please type in your questions as we go for our Q&A at the end of the session. So with that, I'll turn it over to John. Thank you, Gary, for the kind introduction. Why is fiber the only future-ready broadband? Well, we've got unprecedented investment. Uh, we're gonna build more in the next five to eight years than we've built in the last 20. 80 billion in public plus billions more in private. There's confusion as very as Gary mentioned on broadband technology, what's the right one to choose for the historic build? Fiber broadband provides the best value for public and private investment. So meets current and future needs on a single infrastructure. There's no other infrastructure that will do that other than fiber. Uh, provides lower OPEX, lower total cost of ownership versus other options and adds value to subscribers, communities, and service providers. So bandwidth demand has been growing uh, about 27, 28% per year, both download and upload, uh, based on what we see in fixed speed test results. Uh, providers are meeting demand, that's why they're increasing the speeds, and projecting that trend forward uh, to 2030, which is well within the lifetime of any fiber infrastructure or any broadband infrastructure that's built uh, today going forward, we see that reaching 1.5 gigabits down, 600 megabits per second upstream for a single home. Uh, and 35% year 
upload increase is very possible driven by new applications like virtual reality, augmented reality that we're hearing about that are rolling out now. We have uh, adoption now of uh, augmented reality. As that becomes higher definition, more capability required, we could easily require a gig upload by 2030. Another view, uh, just based on the possibility of increasing adoption of 8K uh, as well as AR, VR, and even augmented reality, virtual reality, retinal kinds of technologies that require a very, very high definition view of the environment the user's in to transmit that upstream, to enable uh, with low latency that real experience for the end user, we could easily reach two gigabit symmetrical required for a household of four by 2030. And that doesn't even include the effect of robotic technologies that are being researched, where we may have in-home robots helping to care, for example, for people that need extra support, that have numerous cameras, that have tremendous additional upload requirements. And we've all seen how bandwidth demand has increased dramatically. Uh, just remember back uh, those of us who are from the 20th century, what we were dealing with then, we've seen a, a thousand-fold plus increase in bandwidth demand, and there's no reason to believe that won't continue going forward. And fiber optic technology is meeting that demand and has virtually unlimited headroom to support any application we'll see in the future. So 10 gigabit symmetrical FTTH is starting to become the standard for fiber builds. As you'll see, that's the, uh, the pink part of that chart. So beginning uh, 2022, deployments are going to be 10 gig capable, uh, the majority of them. And then we see the 25 gig and 50 gig systems are already in develop. They've been demonstrated this year. Um, a single fiber, though, can actually support far, far greater capability than even 50 gig or 100 gig, 50,000 gigabits per second. On a single fiber, like what I'm showing on this little board here, we have a single fiber right in that crevice. Or 12 fibers, as you see on the chart, could support 600 terabits per second capacity. That's 60,000 gigabits per second. 60,000 gigabits per second on these 12 fibers. And look how small that is. So fiber infrastructure, virtually unlimited, truly future ready for many, many decades to come. Next. We also have the benefit of fiber capability to support 5G mobility, which will require a dense grid of fiber connected cells to support uh, the real capability of 5G mobility we see as the millimeter wave, the very high bandwidth for mobility. Uh, and so the same fiber infrastructure can support this dense grid of fiber connected cells that's just begun to be built here and will be built out over the future. And that's elucidated in our white paper, The Road to 5G is Paved with Fiber, if you want more detail. So in summary, fiber meets current and future needs on a single infrastructure. Build once, same fiber will support 10, 25, 50 gig, 100, 250, whatever is in the future uh, over the lifetime of that fiber. And fiber cabling uh, lasts 40 years plus, we have fiber cabling that uh, when we were AT&T Lucent Technologies, we installed in the 1980s that is still providing service today. 
and will likely provide service for decades in the future. So that same fiber infrastructure, uh, that outside plant, you won't have to touch it uh, for many, many decades once you build fiber. Uh, and then, of course, supporting the 5G and 6G and whatever is the future for mobility that because of the denser grid of cells that will be required, we'll need far more fiber endpoints uh, that are integrated into a complete system, fiber-based, to homes, businesses, institutions, and cell sites. And all that infrastructure undergirds the smart grid, smart city infrastructure that we will be building uh, going forward. A lot of the uh, infrastructure money that Gary mentioned, uh, there are other many tens of billions around highways, uh, power, grid, et cetera, and all that will require fiber to interconnect and enable it to operate automated and efficiently. So another big advantage of fiber is lower operating expense and lower total cost of ownership versus other options. So compared to the other options, compared to, for example, uh, coax cable, uh, the cost for a new build is about the same for fiber, but uh, the coax is only 73% of the fiber's uh, broadband experience. Uh, that's something that Mike Render measures on a regular basis. The OPEX is about double for uh, an HFC plant, and eventually you'll have to transition to fiber in the future anyway. Uh, ESL over copper twisted pair technologies uh, for a new build is expensive as fiber, uh, but only 55, 54% uh, of the performance from an experience of uh, the end user's capability uh, experience. OPEX is triple and eventually future transition to fiber. Um, wireless, fixed wireless, may be less expensive to install, but uh, the performance is even lower than DSL from the data that we've gotten through surveys. OPEX even higher, potentially even 10X is an example I'll show you. In uh, future, transition cost of fiber is eventually gonna happen anyway. And then satellite, whether it's geosynchronous, Maybe a little bit less expensive uh, upfront, but uh, the performance is, is much lower, particularly for the geosynchronous lower Earth orbit. Uh, so far, not even hitting the 120 uh, requirement of many of the uh, broadband funds. OPEX, we're not sure it's early, and I'll talk more about it, but future transition costs, again, to fiber to support the applications we'll need to support in the future. And remember, we're competing globally with this infrastructure, so we need the future ready infrastructure installed today to compete globally. And that's why private, city, state, national entities are investing in fiber. Uh, there's been a realization, a strong realization, that fiber is the best infrastructure for broadband. So reducing OPEX, uh, really well illustrated in this graphic the Tech Committee created on the left there. So to serve a 40 kilometer diameter area, which is a pretty large area. There's one single fiber node uh, with the fiber optic electronics and transmission receiving equipment in the center of that, the yellow dot that can serve the entire area. If we have DSL, we have coax, uh, or even if we have fixed wireless access, that has uh, significant bandwidth capability, we have to build many, many more uh, tens or hundreds of actively powered nodes within this 40 kilometer diameter. And all those active nodes have 
higher cost for truck rolls, for maintenance, trouble, uh, churning in and churning out is greater because uh, subscribers switch service more often. Uh, and so the bottom line is fiber to the home can reduce 10-year OPEX by $540 versus HFC, $910 versus DSL. And that's uh, really well explained in our FBA fiber OPEX advantages white paper. Here's an example of uh, one of the uh, CTC Technology and Energy as an FBA member. Uh, and uh, they did a study for a client's rural broadband network and found the cost for passing was lower with wireless. Um, but the OPEX cost was 10 times as much in this case. Uh, and then the replacement cost uh, for upgrading the equipment over the 10-year period, 10 times higher. So the TCO actually for fixed wireless was double that of FTTH. And that's a real world study, real topography, engineering to understand and project the cost of fiber versus fixed wireless access. What about low Earth orbit satellites? A lot of that in the media lately. Uh, it sounds very cool. Uh, you can order some equipment, bring it at your house, and get broadband from the sky, a lower Earth orbit than the geosynchronous. Uh, maybe it's a niche application for ultra-low density applications. Uh, each satellite has about a 20 gigabit per second capability. The beam of that satellite expands, spreads out. By the time it hits the Earth, it's covering a huge area, tens of thousands of square kilometers, so very low bandwidth density with low Earth orbit satellites. If we look at FTTH, 10 gigabit PON, XGS PON, for a relatively rural scenario, it has 500 times greater capacity per home than the low Earth orbit satellite. Um, and of course, as we go to 25, 50, 100, that multiple just increases into the thousands versus LEO satellites. So maybe for niche applications, cruise ships, airplanes, remote areas, mountaintops, it's certainly not foundational to future projects like smart grid, won't keep pace with bandwidth demand, uh, not even able to keep pace actually with 100-20 target. Um, and of course, uh, we're gonna, we would end up with thousands and thousands of these crowding space and creating space debris. So more of that in our white paper, as well as the, uh, there's a Cartesian study that was commissioned by FBA that explains this in much more detail. And how does fiber add value uniquely to subscribers, communities, and service providers? So as far as property values, uh, and we've been done these surveys numerous times over the years and consistently find fiber increases property values, fiber to the living unit, uh, whether it's an MDU, uh, multiple dwelling unit apartment, condominium, uh, increases the rent that can be uh, achieved for the property owner, and even for single family homes, about a 3.6% increase in the pricing. Uh, certainly, I live in a home, unfortunately, that's uh, a donut hole in the middle of fiber, uh, and I only have uh, about 22 down and 1.5 up from DSL, and I'm quite concerned that when I go to sell it, people are gonna ask what kind of broadband we have available, and uh, it's gonna be an issue. And that's why uh, the home values that are fiber connected are higher. People are well aware of the capability of fiber broadband, and they want it.
at their property. The rural digital divide, we've heard a lot about that. Um, you know, the, the stories were heard over the pandemic uh, of people having to go to McDonald's and get on the Wi-Fi to do homework, et cetera. But when we look at the fixed broadband connections, um, we see a significant difference between urban, suburban, and exurban, very rural broadband. Um, the uh, rural speeds are 35 to 55% slower. Uh, migration to rural areas is increasing, uh, and that's gonna become a greater concern uh, for people trying to work virtually from rural areas. Uh, bandwidth demand growth is gonna leave rural North America further behind if we don't close this rural broadband gap. Fiber to the home can close that rural digital divide. Economic benefits, very important. Uh, case study here, City of uh, Chattanooga, EPB, uh, they found uh, through a study that uh, realized economic benefits of fiber broadband to the um, 175,000 in uh, Chattanooga, not just for fiber broadband, but also for smart grid, provided economic benefits of uh, $2.7 uh, from job creation, economic development, smart grid savings and improvement in efficiencies, as well as uh, effects for businesses, households, and the community, uh, as well as reducing the uh, power interruptions, outages, uh, benefits during major weather events. You know, I recall presentations uh, from uh, EPB KDS Pacific over the years how the restoration time is so much quicker with a smart grid that's fiber enabled, uh, as well as increased power efficiency, reducing the uh, megawatts of demand of consumption. So a lot of benefits uh, for fiber, broadband, and smart grid, and economic development together. Uh, service providers, uh, you know, there was 10 years ago, there was a lot of question, is fiber a worthwhile investment? Does it have the ROI? Well, there's no controversy whatsoever about that today. We're seeing increasing investments in fiber by private service providers. For example, Apollo Brightspeed acquired uh, 7 million copper lines from Lumen, and uh, New Street Research uh, shows this is going to add about $6 billion in value. So, the ROI on fiber investments is there. Uh, now, certainly some areas that are very, very low density, uh, there needs to be a little added support. That's why we have these rural support programs. Uh, but uh, you know, in this case, uh, they didn't even include that effect in this study and still six billion of value created by fiber versus copper. And if we look at uh, the effect for broadband net ads, uh, those that have fiber uh, are going to have increased net ads uh, in the millions compared to those that don't have fiber. Uh, so this is true for telcos or MSOs, fiber gains market share. It's been consistently shown uh, by the experience of service providers over the last few years. So fiber is the only future ready broadband. We've got unprecedented investment billions and billions of dollars. Uh, we need to clear the confusion on which broadband technology to choose for the historic build. It's fiber. Fiber broadband provides the best value for public and private investment. If it's not fiber, it's not broadband. And now uh, 
we should open it up to questions. Thanks, John. Um, lots of great questions here. Um, one I'm going to start with is um, you were talking about fiber and smart grid because um, the way the question came in is because smart grid, as I understand it, is wireless, which is a dumb grid, hackable in lots of weather interruptions. Two days ago, I had a really lengthy call with Chris McLean, the RUS administrator, and he's also responsible for the electric program. And what he was explaining to me is that in the last two years, more money on the electric program has gone for fiber than actual electric. And uh, so the smart grid is definitely fiber intensive. Um, Jennifer, go back to the slide that had the EPB. So EPB, so on this, their fiber investment, they had, you can see on the realized smart grid benefits, the over 2 million customer interruptions avoided, 43% reduction in outage minutes, um, you know, almost a half billion dollars benefits um, during major weather events, reduction of cons energy consumption. So definitely, had, when you say John has a huge impact to uh, smart grid. Yeah, there's no wireless in that. That's uh, fiber, the same fiber to the home. So this is another really good question here. What would you say to cable operators who say that DOCSIS technology has come far enough and we can accommodate higher scale bandwidth today and in the future? Well, certainly in the evidence, the cable operators out fiber from increased announcement of it, uh, I saw week. So yes, uh, maybe on the short term, uh, the uh, capability might be there for very, very short lengths of coax, but what are we gonna do when we reach 25 gig, 50 gig? Uh, coax is, still has thousands of times less capacity than a single fiber, so eventually we 100% fiber to those at some point. Yeah, I don't think there's a cable operator out there that's deploying coax or HFC into Greenfield, so basically what DOCSIS is just trying to do is um, get a few more years of life out of the existing network. Um, but what we're seeing from cable operators across, all the smaller ones have already kind of moved to fiber the home, and the large ones are quickly scrambling as more fiber is going to be available, and they're going to have to compete with um, what, and we don't have it in these charts, but we've been part of the study that was just issued by the Fiber Broadband Association shows that when a consumer has a choice between fiber or cable or fiber than any other technology, they go with fiber. So, um, you know, that's certainly, and then as John pointed out, uh, Wall Street is certainly um, rewarding companies that are investing in fiber. So it's very accretive and gonna increase, you know, just investment in fiber is, is very, um, gonna boost their valuation. Um, all right, also uh, our good friend Rick has said, um, most folks don't realize that low earth orbit satellite solutions suffer from significant latency. So John, what do you want to say about latency? Well, the uh, low earth orbit satellites have uh, better latency than the geosynchronous ones, but it is greater than fiber, uh, certainly, because uh, the signal was traveling 300 miles instead of 12 miles. We're always going to have an advantage compared to lower orbits latency. And latency 
become increasingly important going forward as we move to augmented reality, improving environment, augmented reality on top of latency just creates dizziness, disorientation. So the latency needs to continue to decline over time. All right, well, unfortunately, we're out of time. I know there's a lot of questions about, um, you know, this OPEX savings moving from DSL or any technology to fiber at home. And um, so we have some white papers on our website we can provide on that. And maybe, John, you can follow up a lot on um, follow up on cable. Uh, can they do symmetric speeds? You know, the problem with DOCSIS, it's great that the innovation of cable labs but what happens is you get to something called node plus zero. So when you're looking at the, the way to get to a point where um, DOCSIS looks as close to fiber, you're basically, you know, you, the cost to do that is you might as well just go ahead and put fiber in. So it's um, it's a great science project, but um, I think at the end of the day, you know, you just have to realize that you need to invest in the future. Um, so John, thank you so much. You know, I hope everybody can join us. Um, next week um, for our webinar on the broadband infrastructure money. That's going to be really insightful um, and hopefully we can answer a lot of unanswered questions. And I hope you guys join us next week for Fire for Breakfast. So thanks again, everyone.